Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Can an encounter with someone who has died heal the trauma for someone connected with it? What is the experiencer actually encountering? Does it matter if what's happening is real? Welcome to the 709th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and those questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, Paul. And today we bring you a new guest on a new approach to an old subject. We welcome your calls. The number is 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. Or if you'd like to send emails, paul at behindtheparanormal.com for those. Alan L. Botkin received his doctorate in psychology from Baylor University in 1983. For the next 20 years, he worked in private practice and as a staff psychologist for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs in the Chicago area. He is currently the director of the Center for Grief and Traumatic Loss in Libertyville, Illinois. His websites include induced-adc.com and healingafterthewar.com. The book is Induced After Death Communication. So, Dr. Alan Botkin, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm happy to be here. And by the way, just a, a, a small correction. Sure. It's healing, healingafterthewar.org. Oh, sorry, healingafterthewar.org. We'll, we'll give you a chance to uh, repeat that several times. So okay. let's uh, let's start from some of the vi- from the the very the very basics. So, what is induced after death communication? Well. Um, <laughs> I, I could talk for three hours on that, but I'll give you the nutshell ver- version as a starter. But um, it, it's a method of therapy that was derived from uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, or EMDR, which is now considered worldwide as an ev- evidence and scientifically based treatment. And it, um, I began um, by using EMDR in the VA hospital, and we got tremendous results. However, there were parts of the EMDR protocol that didn't make sense to me, and I did um, quite a bit of experimentation with it and ended up making some significant changes to standard EMDR. And I ended up with uh, induced uh, after-death communication, or IADC. All right. Um, In your book, Doctor, you say you discovered this in 1995 while working with a Vietnam veteran named Sam. Can you tell us about that? Okay. Uh, um, Sam was a Marine veteran of uh, Vietnam, and he had already worked on uh, a few other of his most severe traumas. And he finally got up the courage to address perhaps his most painful uh, traumatic memory, which was, uh, when he in, uh, was in Vietnam, he became very close with an orphaned uh, 10-year-old Vietnamese girl named Lee, and they developed a very close uh, father-daughter kind of relationship. And uh, Sam had made plans to uh, adopt Lee and bring her home with him. He didn't under- know that at the time that it was very unlikely that uh, the Marines or anyone else there would have uh, allowed that, but he had... Uh, he had made plans, he even called his wife and got her okay and so on. But anyway, one day um, orders came down that all the um, orphan children at their base camp were to be shipped off to uh, a distant village where there was a Catholic orphanage. So um, it was a very sad day for Sam as he and other soldiers or other Marines 
uh, loaded Lee and the other kids onto a flatbed truck to be taken away. And Lee and Sam were saying that their goodbyes, and Sam was promising Lee that, you know, he would find her and follow through on their plans and so on. So, but anyway, as they were loading the kids on the truck, shots rang out. There was a sniper shooting at him, and um, somebody had gotten the sniper, I believe, and the shooting stopped. And uh, but when the shooting started, they were pulling the kids off the truck as fast as they could to the ground to a, a position of relative safety. But uh, after the shooting was stopped, they started loading the kids back on the truck, and Sam didn't see Lee. And he went around to the back of the truck and saw Lee lying face down with a spot of blood on her back. And when he turned her over, he saw that the bullet that had entered her back had blown open her front torso and she was dead. And Sam uh, cried and cried and rocked her lifeless body and eventually the other uh, the Marines had to separate them and so on. But um, that was really the cause of Sam's psychological undoing in Vietnam. Sure. After that, after that he uh, volunteered for dangerous missions and was full of anger and rage and so on. But anyway, I was working with him at the VA, and um, the way this uh, IADC works is uh, we immediately go after um, the core emotional issue of the trauma, which in this case was sadness. And he had overwhelming sadness, and we were processing that with the eye movement treatment. And um, eventually that sadness came down significantly, and he um, took a deep breath, and, and he closed his eyes. And I, as I was sitting there watching him, I noticed his tears had stopped, and a big smile came over his face. Well, I wasn't quite sure what that was all about, so when he opened his eyes, he told me what had happened, which was, Lee had come to him in spirit, he believed, as as a grown woman with beautiful uh, long black hair and a beautiful white gown on and surrounded by the most beautiful light he had ever seen. And then privately, um, Sam said to Lee, no, Lee said to Sam, uh, thank you so much for taking such good care of me back then. Sam responded by saying, um, I love you, Lee, and she said, I love you too, Sam. At that point, she reached out and gave Sam a big hug. Well, when Sam was telling me this, he was, he was actually joyful and absolutely convinced that Lee's spirit had come and talked to him. And he said, I remember him saying, I could actually feel her arms around my neck. So anyway, at the time, I didn't know what an after-death communication was. I had just stumbled onto it at that point, mm -hmm. and uh, I wasn't sure uh, what an after-death communication was, and I was a little concerned that Sam had psychologically decompensated, and I was worried about him. And so I, I, um, I notified the PM shift and to pass it on to the night shift, this was an inpatient unit, you know, to keep an eye on Sam. And Sam did re really well that night and had a lot of happy stories to uh, to tell staff and so on and uh and the next day he was fine and i had never seen that kind of remarkable healing in anybody i had been working with up until that point and that included uh, standard emdr treatment which was ab you know absolutely magnificent but this was something extra special hmm there are a few things that uh well so you've had success uh all along with this since then 
Well, yeah. Um, at, at first, I didn't know what, what I had done that caused this experience to happen. And then it happened a few other times after that with other vets. And I and these and the people who had this kind of experience actually did better than other people who uh, really did much to completely resolve their traumatic memory. So I went back and looked in my notes, and, and I saw that I had done something differently with the people who had this experience. And so I added that extra piece to um, all the other vets I, were, I was treating where a loss was involved, and they... Nearly all of them were then able to have the experience. I noticed that the, uh, the the phrase we're dealing with here is induced after death communication, not spontaneous after death communication. Right. How do you? Right. Could you explain more fully how you induce this experience oh. in the patient? Oh. Okay. Well, first of all, um, your listeners may know, may know what a spontaneous after death communication is. But sure. They're, they're estimated to occur in uh, about thirty percent of the population. And these are experiences, whether uh, people have them awake or asleep, and um, they describe uh, their loved ones, their deceased loved ones, communicating with them. Well, when I first started um, finding that uh, there was a way I could induce this experience in my patients, it was only then that I found uh, Bill and Judy Guggenheim's book, Hello from Heaven, and they described and they did a large survey of um, in North America of people who had reported spontaneous after-death communication. And I was shocked to see that um, the experiences were essentially the same. Okay. There are a couple of things that bother me, Alan, here. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, one, one is in our pre-interview phone call, because uh, we we didn't know you, so we we did this, and plus also we, we do that to try you know make sure we boil down the subject matter to only our our hour here. Uh, we talked about what was really happening here, and whether you believed that the subjects were actually talking to what they think they were talking to, uh, and you said it didn't really make any difference if I remember correctly. And, and as I say, that kind of kind of bothers me. Can you explain further whether uh, the reality of the experience makes any difference? Uh, well. Um, my primary focus as a psychologist is to heal people who suffer profoundly. Um, I, I see the toughest of, of all the cases, um, horrible, horrible things happen, and, and, and I work primarily with civilians now, and it's, the horrors they experience are unimaginable. And yeah, I know. I'm a veteran, is, too. Huh? I'm a veteran, too. I know what you mean. Okay. And, uh, yeah, it's not at all like TV stuff. No, you know, not the, at all. The, the, the real stuff is way different. And, um, but that's my primary focus. And um, I know that there's a big debate out there. You know, some people think, you know, after-death communications are real, and some believe, oh, they must be based on some kind of brain activity. And, uh, you know, there are really two camps out there. And I really have little interest in engaging in that argument because because I do know the healing effects of it are profound, and that's my primary interest. Mm-hmm. Now, if you ask me personally what I think is going on, um, my response is this. Um, first of all, we haven't proved anything with these kind of experiences. As a matter of fact, as a scientist, um, we come up with our best hypotheses, you know, based on the evidence, and we don't really prove anything. Proof, sure. proof is not a scientific term. It's a 
mathematical term or a legal term, but it's not really a scientific term. And I, I'm, I mean, I will admit that, and I, I have a, a, a very strong background in neuroscience, and, and so I'm really kind of good with understanding how the brain works and all that kind of stuff. And so many different people have come up with brain explanations to explain away near-death experiences and after-death communications. And you know what? None of those explanations really hold any water. Hmm. Um, I, 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 I would say that the best hypothesis that we have going is that these experiences are, are indeed real. Okay. And, um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people say, oh, you know, well, it sounds like wishful thinking and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, or, uh, or for people, it's just imagination. Well, I'm a psychologist. I, I've studied, I've had years of studying perception and why people believe in things they do. And things like wishful thinking and projection and imagination just don't cut it either. Those don't hold water as well. Mm-hmm. No, I can, I can see that. Uh, the, the, um, well, as, as you know, the experience of, um, having, of dealing with trauma or whatever, um, no experience in life is, is totally isolated. And, <clears throat> excuse me, especially with an experience like this, you're tying into a certain belief system that, uh, person, and I'm not judging the belief system. I mean, we, we, we're very open-minded. I mean, we, we could be wrong about yeah. ours, other people, you know. But are, are you, um, are you reinfor- when you say that it doesn't matter whether it's what it appears to be, are you reinforcing a false belief system or something that may lead to further psychological problems later on? I mean, I, I don't well, know. I mean, you're the expert. Well, you know, we, we have never um, seen, uh, we don't have one case where people later reported um, any, psych- any kind of psychological problems that, the positive results of this kind of treatment holds up extremely well over time, and we don't even have an exception where it didn't. I mean, it okay. just works really well. And the other thing regarding belief is when I was at the VA and working with combat veterans, and I introduced them to IADC, you know, they looked at me like I was an idiot and said, <laughs> well, it's not going to work with me. I don't believe in that crap. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, actually... And they were actually easier to induce for, for a, a number of different reasons. But mm. it, no belief system is required for this to work with people. Suppose I, as a uh, well, veteran or a combat or whatever, um, have a false memory <clears throat> or some sort of confabulation, especially older, you know, later in life. Would this work even if what I well, was traumatized okay. about never happened? Um, you know, the eye movement, um, EM, even standard EMDR, does two things better than anything else. One, number one, is it fully accesses a memory. In other words, somebody will say, well, I kind of vaguely remember that something happened, and but I have blank spots in my memory, and so on and so forth. If, if you have somebody bring up that trauma and give them eye movement, it, it will all come up. It will all come up. And a lot of times... Um, People do have memories that, for one reason or another, uh, sort of ended up being falsely put together, or there's false information in the memory. But the eye movement clears that up. As a matter of fact, I had one guy um, who thought his mother was uh, smothering him with a pillow and trying to kill him when he was a kid, and um, that came up during a session of hypnosis, where, of course, people are highly suggestible, and, 
And false memories really are a, a real phenomenon, so you have to be real careful with that. Mm. But when, when giving uh, EMDR to this person or IADC to this person, um, he, he remembered the situation correctly, which was that he was being put in a stroller on a cold day and his mother was wrapping a scarf around his face. And so his vague memory of sort of not being able to breathe, breathe, uh, he sort of uh, put together a false memory around that. And but we were able to clear that up with eye movement. Of hmm. course, once you once you bring up a memory in full, um, that the, the work is only half done because then uh, you have to continue the eye movement so the memory then processes. And we have a lot of. Um, uh, science now um, on, on the neuroimaging and, and the brain mechanisms involved with eye movement. And, uh, and brains look very different before and after eye movement. Okay. So, meaning no disrespect, what's the mm -hmm. difference in essence between what you do for people who need closure and what old mediums used to do during seances? Well, um, first of all, um, we, we're now getting a lot of science behind IADC. As a matter of fact, there's a, a very important control group design study going on at the University of North Texas. As a matter of fact, they're finished and they're crunching the numbers now. Um, but, of course, the control group design study is a scientific standard, is the gold standard in the field. Um, but we have other outcome studies that have been published and and we also have somebody now, you know, taking a look at what's going on in the brain uh, during um, IADC. So, you know, we're getting the science behind it now, and we're finding out what really goes on. Now, I don't know about seances so much. I'm not a student of seances, but, um, you know, I, I, I do, it does seem to me that some of the work that uh, some mediums do is, is probably valid, and it's not, and it's not, it's not a big leap from, you know, my doing IADC to, to, to uh, the idea that, um, you know, somebody else can have the experience and pass it on. Hmm. In, um, I'm just wondering how to approach the subject of the physicality of some of these experiences. Uh, I was struck in your narrative about Sam, Alan, that he mm -hmm. f specifically felt the arms around her neck of something that was supposed to be a spirit around his neck. Mm -hmm. um, how do you explain the, the physical nature of many of these experiences? Now, I, well, you know, it's not, you know, it's interesting when it comes to touch. People tend to report it's just like real physical touch. Um, but, of course, people also see the deceased and hear the deceased, but they don't see and hear them. Um, it, you know, with, with the same physical apparatus that, you know, that we have during a normal waking state, you know, that, um, you know, of course, they, they see the deceased with their mind's eye. And when it comes to verbal communication, they don't hear the deceased like as, as we do with sound waves coming through the air. They, they describe it as more of a telepathic kind of communication where the the thoughts from the deceased are, are more planted in them. I wonder how they'd know that. How they know what? 
whether it's telepathic or whether it's actually physical. What we're getting at here is that uh, we're very interested in the theory of parallel worlds, parallel physical worlds, you know, a la quantum mechanics and the MWI mm-hmm. and this sort of thing. And we feel this plays a lot of <coughs> plays a major role in many of these paranormal experiences. So, but again, we, no one knows for sure. So I was just, you know, wondered if you had any well, thoughts. Well, uh, I'm 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 very interested in quantum mechanics. I'm very interested in cosmology and so on, and, and that's kind of a hobby of mine. And and you know what? I think that ultimately, when we come to understand this stuff. Um, th- 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 there will be some physics th- that help us understand and describe it. Okay. Uh, do you notice any differences in the experience by age? In other words, if you were to do this with me, uh, who um, I'm pretty old, and <laughs> mm-hmm. the other, so uh, or, or someone who's from Afghanistan, the Afghanistan campaign, that sort of thing, would uh, would there be differences, or is it pretty universal? Um, it's, it's pretty universal. But don't, like, you know, between a 20-year-old and a 90-year-old, um, it, it pretty much works the same. Hmm. Okay. Um, p- people often ask me if I do this with children, and I, I haven't worked much at all with children. And part of it is, is um, the, the ADC part of IADC, in terms of the therapy experience, the IADC part is, is the very last thing we do. The very first, the first 90% of IADC therapy is processing sadness. And when you're, you know, 10 years old, the idea of sitting in front of a stranger and allowing yourself to fully feel your sadness and cry and, and feel it real directly like that is, is, uh, can be very difficult for younger people. You know, younger people sometimes you know, act out behaviorally when they're feeling a certain way as opposed to, you know, allowing themselves to directly feel it and so on. Mm. Okay. Uh, in your book, you report two cases of subjects seeing people who were still alive. What was that all about? You know, that is extremely unusual. And, um... <laughs> not, yeah, in our, I, not in our experience, but perhaps in, in, in your realm it is. Huh? Well, that's not. I, this in that, the 1970s, I started running into people who were seeing ghosts of themselves and ghosts of people who weren't dead yet, and that really called into question a lot of the old ideas. So that's why I kind yeah, of bring it up. Yeah, that, that's, well, you that's know, it's so unusual. But you know, in fact, the one case I do remember, um, and I'm sure this is one that you're talking about, is um, <clears throat> um, this man I was working with had uh, like a 24 year old son who was. Um, severely disabled. He was microcephalic. He had the mental age of a, like a one or two year old or something like that. He wore diapers and so on and so forth. And he actually had the experience of speaking to his son's spirit. And his son's spirit was, um, had, had no disease, no pathology, and was completely healthy and could communicate and so on. Um, so it's, and as a matter of fact, the communication from his son was, uh, Dad, don't worry about me. I really have it the best because I'm able to live in both worlds at the same time. Interesting. Well, that's food for thought. And, I'm sure and as, a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, all people who are old and sick or disabled in some kind of way, when they're experienced uh, in an ADC, they're always healthy. They're always fine. They're always healthy. It's like the spirit apparently um, it doesn't get sick or disabled. It's always healthy. So. All right, well, if it is a spirit, but nevertheless, I mean, the point is well taken. Um, 
have you and we talked about this on the phone have you encountered people who have had uh, or at least during this experience had negative contacts rather than healing contacts uh, no Never. Um, we have not had one negative thing now one time it di- there did appear to be a negative response I was working with a guy who had lost his brother and he this guy this patient was kind of a high anxiety kind of person and we uh, processed the sadness, and when he, when we then used the eye movement to induce the ADC, he, when he closed his eyes, he immediately opened his eyes and jumped out of his chair and said, there's a giant claw around my neck trying to choke me to death. Hmm. Um, I, <laughs> he trusted me enough, and he had had other ADCs, which were very positive, and with other traumas, so I encouraged him to go back to see what it was. And it was his brother trying to give him a hug, but he misinterpreted that as something um, that was threatening. Okay. So, so anyway, he and so once again with with the tactile ADC, he he actually felt like something was around his neck, but um, but it was just his brother giving him a hug, as he soon found out. Okay. Do you record these? Uh, I'm talking audio and or video or, or you know, photographs. You, know, you know, I should. Um, I, some of my clients, um, um, I allow them to record the session so they can, you know, use, you know, they can so they can go over it later by themselves. Um, you know, and I probably should. You know, there, there's so many times I work with somebody, and I only see people for two sessions, two 90-minute sessions, and that's really all we need. And um, but. Um, you know, it, it, many times I, I would think, oh, I wish I would have videotaped that. that. It was wonderful. I would love to share that. Hmm. You know, um, and I'm, you know, as long as it was okay with my patient, of course. But, okay. Um, uh, but you know what? You know, the stuff we do in IADC is so personal. It's so raw. You know, having a, um, having a, having it being filmed feels somewhat like an intrusion, and. It, it, it would make most of my patients a little uncomfortable. You should and try exorcism. <laughs> anyway, well. Well, sorry to inter- interrupt, Alan, but we have to take our bottom of the hour break. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our great guest, Dr. Alan Botkin. Stay with us. The Extra Point, afternoons on ON 1240 Radio bringing you local interviews, stories, and opinions on the local athletes with none other than radio great Lou Mandeville. Yes, that's me. Afternoons, Monday through Friday on ON 1240. Okay, and welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. We're talking today with Dr. Alan Botkin about induced after-death communication, or IADC, and I, I'm, I'm finding it very fascinating. Uh, now, Doctor, before we burn up this hour, we will, I want to give you a chance to talk about uh, your your book, uh, your website, any any place people can find out more about you, uh, and uh, what any events you have coming up. Hello? Did we lose him? He was just there. Oh, that's uh. Oh, well, I guess we did. I guess we're oh, on the okay. other line. All right. Okay. Well, we'll uh, we'll get Doctor Botkin back here. Line. That uh, doesn't usually happen during breaks. And uh, okay. In any case, uh, we're talking. Um, it's rather interesting. Uh, I wanted to ask Doctor Botkin too about the uh, how the VA, uh, the Veterans Administration, reacted to this new sort of therapy. 
and uh, I guess we have him back. I hope. Do we have uh, our guest back, or do we? Oh, okay. All right. Well, this is not our guest. Oh, it's not it's our Susan guest. Susan Spooler. Oh, Susan Spooler. Well, that's perfect. Also, do uh, you have us on speaker, Susan? Because if you, we are on speaker, please take us off. Okay. No, 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 we're not, no, we're not on speaker. I have Billy okay. on the other line. Oh, okay. Okay, there we very go. good. Well, Susan Spooler is the uh, organizer of the the excellent one of our favorite events of the year, certainly the Greater New England UFO Conference, coming up in a couple of weeks. And Susan, tell us all about it. Well, I have Willie, uh, Willie Miranda, my, my co-coordinator with me on the phone here, mm-hmm. and uh, the event is uh, Friday and Friday night and Saturday, October 6th and 7th at Lemonster City Hall, 25 West Street. Our website, www.newenglandufo.com. We'll be having Nick Redfern for our keynote speaker. Uh, you, uh, Paul and Den Eno will be joining us at the event Friday night and Saturday, Paul. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us uh, what you'll be talking about on Friday night. Well, Friday night... Uh, for the uh, Bigfoot folks. Sure. Yeah, well, Friday night is Bigfoot night at, the, at this great event. And uh, Ben and I have uh, recently been involved in a couple of Bigfoot uh, incidents, shall we say, uh, in one of our cases. And we're going to be talking about the, the fur flies, Bigfoot, and UFOs. So that, that'll be, uh, that'll be on uh, Friday night for us. That sounds, that sounds very exciting. Um, we'll also be... Um, Having uh, Alexander. Oh. Oh, that's not like an echo. That's not an echo. Hello. Um. It wasn't echo. Okay. We have Dr. Um, Alan Botkin back. Okay. Uh, Do- Dr. Botkin, we're taking a caller right now. Um, so if you just sort of sit tight, we'll we'll be right with you. I'm sorry, Susan. Okay. Go ahead. Oh, that's okay. Um. Anyways, we're also we're also having um, Travis Walton and uh, Peter Robin. Will be our, you know, Peter Robbins will be our um, our MC. Bill Hall will be joining us as well as uh, Mark D'Antonio. Cool. So on so on, the, so on Friday night again, we'll be having Alexander Petikov. Mm-hmm. So he'll he'll be speaking uh, about his big movies, and he does research on the Loch Ness monster as well as uh, Bigfoot. Excellent. So, uh, terrific people. Yes, yes. Yeah. And we'll be, um, we have a wonderful venue at Blemister City Hall. You'll be able to see us by the giant 8-foot, 9-foot tall inflatable aliens um, <laughs> on the, <laughs> out, out on the, uh, the, the, the street land. Can't the miss hall. it. And, we'll be, and we have a, uh, a special uh, food vendor called Soup Dog, and he'll be serving specially named food for our wonderful event. I to get in for Friday night is ten dollars, and Saturday is twenty five dollars for all day. And uh, we we've always we've kept the price uh, consistent over the past few years because we want people to be able to afford to come, and um, you know we just keep our our uh, our costs low, and uh, we want everyone to have a good time and see their favorite speakers, and we're thrilled uh, we're thrilled with the people that, that show up, and we're honored to have Paul and Ben, you know. Uh, coming to be among the speakers that we'll be having. So. Well, it's a, it's a great event, and uh, on Saturday we'll be speaking on something entirely new, but there's been a big demand for it among the listeners and other people, uh, and it, we're going to be talking about UFOs, the paranormal, and God, you know. Totally well, non-denominational. Well, that's interesting. But yeah. exactly, you know, what, no, what are the religious implications of these things? So uh, it's going to be a great right. event, and we encourage everybody again. Uh, the website, Susan? 
www.newenglandufo.com. That's N-E-W-E-N-G-L-A-N-D-U-F-O.com. And we'll be having um, lots of vendors that will be selling, that the speakers will be selling their books. And we have other, uh, we have the, the uh, Seacoast Saucers uh, group will be there as well. They, um, they discuss with people their um, abduction experiences and they have help for, for folks. And uh, we'll, we'll, be, um, we'll just be having a grand old time. We'll have our, our uh, annual um, costume party, I'm sorry, costume contest. We'll have prizes. We'll have our inflatable aliens that will be for sale, uh, as we always do, because everybody likes to take home a fun souvenir from there. Especially the kids. Yeah. New England, we tell the kids, absolutely. Excellent. So, and also, Susan, let's figure it'll be our fifth year. Our oh, fifth year. Willie Moran, the co-organizer. Yeah. Very good. Well, we'll look. We'll look forward to seeing. We'll look forward to seeing you both in a, in a couple weeks, and uh, we'll be talking absolutely. to you again next week on the show. Okay, we'll, and we'll be uh, having our. Uh, we have our new buttons. Uh, we have new buttons every year, and this will be another unique one that people will enjoy wearing. Very good. Okay. okay thank thank you. you so much, Paul. You have a great day. You Take too, care. folks. Thanks, okay. Bye bye. Bye bye then. Okay, let's get back to Doctor Alan Bach. And uh, are you with us, Alan? Yep. Oh, very good. Thank you for your patience. Yes, thank you for your patience. Okay. Um, so we were talking a little bit about recording these sessions one way or another. Um, I don't know. Ben, would you have any suggestions as far as uh, audio? You know, should they choose to do this? I mean, I understand the personal nature of these things. I mean, any little but. handheld recorder is pretty pretty useful for that, you know? Well, also, uh, someone taking a few pictures might be interesting um, just because, you know, things do sometimes come out in pictures and uh you know i learned photography in the military and uh, you know it was you, you don't know what these things may be but you never know any any sort of physical evidence uh um, might be at least anal we'd be able to analyze it anyway so that's just that's just a thought you know so uh but the next the next actual question alan is uh how did the veterans administration react to this was there any official reaction when you started to do this and you've been doing it for many years um, I'm no longer in the VA. I left in 03. Um, and at the time, we were mostly doing this in uh, secrecy. We weren't telling a whole lot of folks. And I was uh, using the procedure, and so were my interns, and so were other staff. So a lot of us were doing it. And we were all getting great results. When uh, my, I my first article was published in the year 2000 in the Journal of Near-Death Studies, and somebody from the front office did come and say, came to uh, the director of our unit, said, what the hell is this all about? And uh, um, uh, our director on the PTSD unit said, well, you know, I don't fully understand it, but back off. Um, this is really good for our numbers. People are, um, we have a waiting list to get in now, and, uh, and it really does seem to be helping the vets. So stay away from them. Don't, don't give them any trouble. Hmm. Okay, well, I can't ask more than that. Uh, I I, I did get some help, uh, some uh, blocking blocking at the time. Okay. I don't know if Ben had a question at this point. He kind of looks like he does. Oh, well, I'm I'm more like contemplating the universe. Um, But I do do think it's, it's, it's an interesting idea to me because it sounds like 
a twist on past life regression, which uh, are you? I'm assuming you're familiar with that, do- yeah. uh, Dr. Bakken. Okay. So it sounds like past life regression, but it doesn't go into past lives, if you believe in that. Uh, it more... I, I, I always felt like past past life regression was kind of kind of a a um, what's the word? I can't think of a word. Well, you know, it's a, it's something that seems very like you're trying to do something personal with yourself, and you know maybe it's it's a projection of whoever's doing the regressing or a projection of whoever is being regressed. Do you feel as if? Um, you could be scrutinized for the the idea that this is similar to past life regression. Um, yes and well, yes and no. I mean, they're both procedures that induce a private experience that seems real to people. Um, one huge difference is most past life regression, as 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 I know it, as I understand it, is based on a um, hypnosis or some variation of hypnosis. So with past life regression, you have to be much more careful about what's being suggested, what's being projected, and so on and so forth. And you really don't have that same problem with uh, with the eye movement procedures. Okay. Can you give us more examples uh, of, civ- of civilian uh, work that you've done with IADCs uh, more recently than when you were at the VA? You know, it's just success uh, stories, yeah, that sort of thing. Let me think. You know, it's always hard to do because I see so many people and then they, they kind of get jumbled in my head. Yeah. Um, but I, um, w- one kind of interesting one, um, now it goes back you know, all the way to 9-11, but um, that was after I left the, no, it wasn't. It was, well, the event occurred before I left the VA, but I saw the person, you know, as a civilian um you know, once I had retired from the VA, but um, a, a woman worked in a bookstore a block or two from uh, the Twin Towers, and she was there when the airplanes hit, and she went out to the street to see what was happening, and at that point, she saw the bodies coming out of the window. Oh, gee. It was a horrific sight, and she was traumatized by that, had nightmares and so on. And she had overwhelming sadness for those people, even though she didn't know any one of them personally. Um, but anyway, she came to see me, and um, and she had profound sadness, I mean, just as if you know it was her own mother who had died. And so, in typical IADC fashion, you know, we processed through all that sadness, and at the end, we went for the ADC experience, and she experienced sort of a a group message which was um, our suffering was brief and it's over for us now. And that is, as simple as that is, it, it was very profound for my patient because she understood that, yeah, it was horrible for them, but it was extremely brief and it's now over. And, and, and to my patients, they're obviously in a better place right now and they're all happy. Um, and that her suffering was what continued, not theirs. Okay. And it was okay for her to let her suffering go. Well, it certainly sounds admirable, uh, what you're doing here. But, of course, one wonders uh, that being uh, sort of in the realm of science, which involves peer review and uh, disciplined mm-hmm. thinking, um, how have you, from non-VA uh, professionals, how, how have they reacted to uh, 
to what you do as say your colleagues? Well, um, I um, had some um, concern about that when I left the VA and went public with this. Um, but actually, I've had I've had no severe criti- criticism from my peers. Um, as a matter of fact, um, the studies that were published were in a peer-reviewed journal. Um, I even get letters from university uh, professors in psychology um, who are in very conservative scientific uh, uh, environments, and they send me letters saying, you know, I admire your courage. Keep doing what you're doing. Hmm. What you're doing is important. Very and, good. of course, and at the same time, you know, like I mentioned before, the study at the University of North Texas, you know, we're really working on getting the science behind this now. And, and that's some of the reason why I don't go around saying, oh, you know, these experiences are real and so on and so forth. I don't want to jump the gun in that way. Because I really want to do present, I, I really, my ultimate goal is to mainstream this as a very powerful and helpful psychotherapeutic tool, um, as a therapy that works profoundly and rapidly. And that's, again, that's, that's my major focus and, and that's why I want to get the science behind it. And really the only people who have been consistently negative about what I'm doing are people who are uh, lifelong skeptics. Now, I don't think they're healthy skeptics because they have their, you know, belief system already in place about what's possible and what isn't possible and, and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, if you go to some of these skeptic what, uh, websites, you know, they may say something negative about what I'm doing. But, again, their minds are already make, made up. I don't see mm. that as a, as a healthy scientific attitude. No, I certainly have to agree. We live in a scientific environment that is still based on the scientific method, uh, which is essentially assumes the materiality of all reality, you know, right. energy thrown in there. Um, how, do you think our science is actually up to dealing with this, based on what you said about bringing in scientific evidence to back it up? I mean, is, is, is yeah, our science you know, good enough? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that it can be done. I'm optimistic that um, uh, it can be it, it can be um, accepted and understood in the scientific in the scientific world. I, that's just kind of how I've always been. That's my worldview, and 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 I'm optimistic. Okay, may we ask how this has affected your own belief system? Well, um, yeah, I. I um, I'm pretty sure, and, you know, I'm also a student of near-death experiences. I've talked to many hundreds of people who have had near-death experiences, Mm -hmm. probably over a thousand at this point. And I'm absolutely convinced that when we die, something very nice happens to us. And uh, it's very beautiful over there. One thing um, that's consistent in ADC experiences is that the deceased really are in a better place. It's like we're, we're in a place where... You know, suffering and pain and agony are part of our existence, and it's it's not it's not that way on the other side. If there is another side, which again, with the evidence seems to suggest there in fact is, or perhaps millions of other sides, maybe. No, yeah, we just don't, yeah. don't know. One of the things that we all we always ask when it comes to uh, any sort of term about the afterlife or, or concept of this sort of thing. Is suppose uh, well there, there are two things one one is sort of tongue in cheek and a, a bit jocular um, 
if so, we've gone to uh, sessions with media, you know, sort of large audiences and this sort of thing, and listen to mediums speak, mm-hmm. and it's all re- relatively boilerplate. You know, your loved one and, and this sort of thing, you're in contact with this one. Well, what if you didn't like the person? I mean, what if the person was a pain in the neck and it's just as well to be away from them? I don't expect you to answer that. That's just an observation. Well, no, I, I, I actually have a good answer. Sure, please. Um, I worked with one guy, one guy, and this is kind of typical. Um, his father was deceased, and but his father was a total son of a bitch when he was alive. He, uh, was, a dr- he was a drunken, abusive, no good guy. Okay, you got to watch that because we're FCC regulated here. I got you. Okay. Um, well, I'm just quoting my uh, patient. Okay. <laughs> um, and in the, um, he does have an ADC with his father, and his father comes through for the first time ever as a very different uh, guy. He comes through as, as being very aware of all the pain he caused in other people, um, taking full responsibility for what he did, uh, wanting to fix and or help those that he, he caused to suffer, and so on and so forth. And just seeing his father in that different state um, was uh, was very healing for him. Well, that's good. Now, and I think there's a reason for that. When 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 people were very bad in life, they always come through in the ABC as having changed a lot. And I think there's a reason for that. And I think that part of the death experience is something called the life review. And when you have a life review, you experience every moment in your life and every the feelings you had in each one of those moments and the feelings you caused in other people. So if I hurt your feelings today on the phone somehow in my life review, I, I will feel that pain that I caused in you. So the idea that we are completely separate entities and um, is somewhat of an illusion Mm. And then in some very important way, we are all connected. So when this you know, horrible father has a life review, he, he feels all the pain he caused in other people, and for the first time he fully understands what he had done. This is entirely... And, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the ABC experience and the induced ABC, are, uh, the, the content uh, is, is so very similar to near-death experiences. But, but obviously from a, a different point of view. Okay. One question that often arises, and maybe this is my theology background, and I'm not arguing heaven and hell here one way or the other, but one wonders if, and again, entirely theoretical, if one were to um, somehow have an experience like this involving Stalin, Hitler, or Mao, who between them killed tens of millions of people and didn't yeah. care a whit about it, uh, did they go to a better place? People like that who have, you know, absolutely sociopaths, uh, you know, in the best term. That's a good question, um, and I can give you my best guess based on um, a handful of patients' experiences. And there is something Raymond Moody talked about in one of his books. Hmm. He described near-death experiences, and he called this the realm of bewildered spirits. There does seem to be an in-between place, and when my patients see a person in that realm, they describe it as a darker place. And, and they said not darker in terms of light and darkness, but it's a sort of darker spiritually. It's more of a gray area. It's not, it's not lit and beautiful. But, 
But in those cases, the people were, were really bad people. I mean, when we're in a life review, every human being, you know, we've all done mean and dumb stuff in our life where we hurt other people's feelings. Mm. And, and we see and feel that in the life review. But the judgment that goes with that is, is not harsh. But, um, and even if you don't consider this realm of bewildered spirits that movie talks about, still people like uh, Stalin, Hitler, and so on, um, imagine the life reviews they must have. They must be absolutely horrible if they have to feel the pain and suffering they caused of all of these people. It, it, it's not a good afterlife. Hmm. But, you know, it's not like there are pitchforks and, you know, burning fires. And, no, yeah, of know, course not, yeah. And that, and that kind of thing, you yeah. know. But, um, but people who, let's put it this way, it seems like people who were very bad, once they get there, they have more work to do. Hmm. Interesting. Rather anthropomorphic, but you know, who knows? Yeah. One of the questions, too, is, and of course this is sort of the, the, the mother of all questions on this show, is... How do these people know they're really talking to the people they think they're talking to? You know, how do you know? And well, as you said, it, it, it helps, so maybe it doesn't make any difference. I mean, what, what is what is the answer to that question? I mean, one of the things we find in the paranormal, with our experience, is that nothing is what it appears to be. Half the time, when you're dealing with what you think is some kind of spirit, it's it's something entirely different and quite physical, and uh, there are all sorts of things. So you you get the gist of the question. I mean, uh, yeah, um, I. I just think, and, and again, I'll compare ADCs and NDEs. There is something about the experience that is just extremely convincing. Mm-hmm. It just feels so real. Like when someone is communicating with their deceased mother, to them, that's mom. That's that. You know, they know mom, and they know um, they're not making it up because mom is saying things that they didn't expect to hear mm-hmm. um, sometimes they get things they really disagree with sometimes they don't even understand the message um, um, as a matter of fact I worked with one guy and uh, he asked his father to see father for advice and his father said use your tools and my patient opened his eyes and said use my tools my tools are rusting out in the back of the garage you know they're out of date you know why would he tell me to use my tools so you know, we induced the experience again, and he went back to ask his father what he meant. His father said, not those tools, the tools you're, you're using in therapy. You know, so um, it, these conversations feel to the patient, my patients or the experiencers, like real conversations. Yeah. Um, they don't feel like they're making it up. You know, if the person was making that up, you know, use your tools. Why would he give himself a message he didn't understand? Mm. I mean, it really has the feeling of of uh, two people talking. Okay, I, I hear you. Uh, probably the last question we'll have time for is uh, language barriers. We, in I, our particular... I love this question. Good. Most people said they've never been asked it before. Uh, uh-huh. We've we run into the language barrier. I once communicated in an attic near Buffalo, New York, with a, a very non-human but very noble creature... Long story, but in a very bizarre form of Latin, and it took three days to get through. Sometimes uh, you may be dealing with a world, in our point of view, where English doesn't even exist. Have you ever run into a language barrier in any of these communications? No, actually not. Really? But, um, I was. Uh, this happened a number of times at the VA where my patient felt 
a lot of uh, grief over people they killed in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And we took them through the procedure. Of course, it only worked if they had sadness for their victims. And But if, if that was the case, IADC worked in the same way. And my patients would have conversations with deceased Vietnamese people. And I remember the first time that happened, when my patient opened his eyes, I said, what language did you speak? And my patient looked at me in a funny way, and he goes, you know, that's weird because we didn't speak Vietnamese or English. We we spoke a language that was very clear in terms of words, but it went beyond Vietnamese and English. Isn't that there interesting? There does seem to be some kind of universal language. Yeah. Well, I, I, I dare say it's probably not Esperanto, but we're out of time, Doctor. Uh, thank you very much for a very fascinating conversation. We'll be in touch off the air. Dr. Ellen Bodkin, everyone. Yeah, if, if people have more questions, go to induced-adc.com. Very I good. a lot of web pages and things to look at. Outstanding. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I okay. enjoyed it. Very good. Okay, folks, uh, let's get to our announcements. Uh, on Saturday, September 30th, that's uh, a couple weeks away, We'll talk about strange connections, UFOs, cryptids, and ghosts in western Connecticut and beyond at the Brandywine Living Center in Litchfield, Connecticut, heart of the Litchfield Triangle, at 2 p.m. RSVP to Nanette at 860-567-9500. Among the books we'll have for sale, of course, at this event and signing will be our newest one, uh, Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard Of, also available on Amazon.com and Amazon Kindle, and we'll have copies available for sale at all our forthcoming events can't get to any of those events and still like an autographed copy of any of our books, you can get them at the show's online bookstore at BehindTheParanormal.com. And our 2016 book, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, is in most bookstores, and if they don't have it, they can get it. And it's also available at all of our forthcoming events, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and other online retailers. And again, you can get an autographed copy at BehindTheParanormal.com. Now, on October 6th and 7th, as you heard from our caller at the bottom of the hour, uh, Susan Spooler and Willie Miranda, the organizers, uh, we'll be back at the Greater New England UFO Conference at City Hall in Lemonster, Massachusetts, one of our favorite events of the year. Uh, our subject for Friday evening, Bigfoot Night, will be The Fur Flies, Bigfoot and UFOs. That'll be at 7.45 p.m. On Saturday at 11 a.m., we'll, t- we'll, we'll present a talk on UFOs, the paranormal, and God. Find information at New England. UFO.com. And the following week, October 14th, we'll speak at the Western Connecticut UFO Conference at the Danbury Connecticut Library, along with Linda Zimmerman, Rosemary Allen Guiley, Shane Searway, and other legendary researchers. A mere three days after that, on October 17th, we'll be right here in our local listening area presenting an updated program on Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, at the Blackstone Public Library in Blackstone, Massachusetts. Following Saturday, October 21st, uh, I'll be back at the Danbury Library in Connecticut, this time with author William J. Hall for a program about Bill's 2014 book, The World's Most Haunted House, about the famous Bridgeport poltergeist case of 1974, to which I'm one of the uh, few surviving eyewitnesses. And on Saturday, October 28th at 1 p.m., we'll be speaking at the Portsmouth Public Library in New Hampshire, and the subject is, What's Really Behind the Paranormal in New Hampshire? And beyond. And don't forget about our YouTube channel, Behind the Paranormal Case Files, which we are working on more content. Okay, what do we have next Sunday, Ben? So next Sunday, uh, September 24th, uh, we'll, rep- uh, we'll present an open line show with popular guest host Shane Searway, and we'll tackle some, well, all sorts of paranormal questions for you. 
And you, well, we still have a, we still have a little. Well, I was going to mention our website one more time. Uh, Please, behindtheparanormal.com. You can find out all about our upcoming events, uh, our books, and the future shows. And there are also over 720 hours of free recorded shows on our archives. So, so check it out. Yes, do not forget about that. And we leave you this afternoon with a quote from my dad's 2002 book, Footsteps in the Attic. Oh, look at that. You get to get to quote yourself. <laughs> oh, that's really not very nice. But our, I'm sorry. I, it's, it's, a point. A, it's a good quote, which is, nothing the, in the paranormal is what it appears to be. Well, I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And thanks for joining us on Behind the Paranormal. And we will see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.